This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. What's up, everybody? It's your host, Will, coming back for a new episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by 10 Point Crossbows, the leader of crossbow technologies for over 25 years. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Moose Utility Division, your brand for all seasons. On this week's episode, we are going to be talking something fairly controversial in the Whitetail Woods right now. And specifically, we're going to be talking about CWD and EHD. Now, we're not going to be throwing around political things about this podcast. This one is going to be merely educational and informative. And the reason I'm saying this is I want to bring knowledge to everybody because I feel like these two diseases commonly get misconstrued. There are lots of opinions and you can almost say myths out there about these that aren't true. And so I'm not qualified to talk about this. And the man that is, is Mr. Brian Murphy. Brian's on our team, wildlife biologist. He was the CEO of QDMA for many years. And so we're going to get Brian on here to bring a very informative and educational podcast to y'all. He's going to be going into each one and describing what they stand for, what they are, symptoms that you can identify in the deer if you have deer acting like this and just things that you as steward of the wildlife and hunter can see and be able to identify if you're concerned that your hunting property or piece of public land that you're on might have one of these and so you'll be able to be better informed on this and make better decisions just when it comes to hunting in general because I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there and the whole subject itself has just been really politicized, especially when it comes to baiting and numerous other things. And Brian's also just going to talk about things to think about, especially if you are going out of state. You want to make sure that there are things that you take care of when it comes to CWD, 
even EHD, just things to uh, have in your mind before you leave the property that you were hunting on. So I'm not going to get into it too much. I'm going to let Brian bring his knowledgeable mind to the podcast table and just drop some nuggets for y'all and hope that y'all will be better informed at the end of this podcast. So again, y'all, we just want to thank y'all for tuning in to the Hunt Stand Podcast. We've had lots of support. So whatever podcast listening platform you're on, please make sure you go down, rate, review, and subscribe or follow, just depending on what you're listening on. We can't thank y'all enough for all the support. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. We got plenty of other episodes before this one for you to dive into. And remember, rate, review, subscribe. And also, if you do not have the Hunt Stand app, download it. Make sure you do. We got free, pro, and pro whitetail, all the things, all the tools you need to go head out into the woods this fall to be successful and maximize your time in the woods to be more efficient. So upgrade to pro whitetail today if you want to unlock the highest tier of hunt stand. I'm going to quit talking and let's get to it with our man, Brian Murphy. All right, Brian. Well, man, welcome back to the hunt stand podcast. Good to be here with you, man. I always like getting you on here because I learn something new every time I podcast with you. And so I'm really looking forward to what I'm going to find out today. But before we get into the weeds, we're going to be talking CWD and EHD. And reason being is uh, a guy on our team, sounds like up in Iowa, there's kind of a nice, uh, not nice, but there's a flare up in cases of EHD lately. So I want to get into that. But before we do, just kind of give the listeners that may not know you yet that quick 30,000 foot view of yourself, man. Well, uh, you know, a lot of people, if anybody knows me, they probably know my affiliation a long time with the Quality Deer Management Association. Um, I'm a wildlife biologist by training and had the good opportunity to run uh, uh, the Quality Deer Management Association for about 23 years and got a chance to work deer issues all over the country, uh, including both EHD and CWD. So while they're not subjects I, I enjoy uh, talking about per se because yeah. of the, the negative impacts on deer, they're important issues. And uh, also, there's a lot of confusion around both of those diseases uh, in terms of what they are, what causes them, what what you can do about them, uh, and even some confusion between the two. You know, they get them confused, which one is which. And mm-hmm. so I think it's a great topic for uh, for us to discuss today. And uh, for the last uh, three years, I've, I've been on the hunt stand team. Um, I handle our corporate relations, a lot of the conservation organizations and state agencies. Uh, but also do some, obviously, some deer content and deer-related functions for the team, uh, working on uh, everything from new uh, new features in the app uh, to, you know, now with uh, GSM, working on food plot seed and and other other things that uh, that are in their portfolio. So Heck yeah. uh, a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades. Heck yeah, man. Master of none. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all of us, isn't it? Yeah, have to be if you're going to stay employed these days. Yeah, ain't no joke, man. Well, let's, let's get into it. I, I, and the reason I want to talk about this, you know, like I, I talked about just a minute ago, it seems like there's some cases of EHD flaring up. You're seeing stuff in, you know, online articles or you're seeing it, hearing about it in podcasts. You know, there's there's all this political jargon going around with CWD and baiting and EHD and all this other stuff. And so I feel like there's a lot of people that just aren't well informed on what the two diseases are. So I wanted to get your take and pretty much just be factual and educational for this whole podcast. So tell the listeners, you know, let's just go down the list of real quick of what EHD is, what CWD is, and what they are. Okay. Well, I'll start with EHD. 
And EHD is a disease that's not new to the deer world. Uh, in fact, it's uh, been known about at least since the 1950s. Uh, so this is, a we believe, a naturally occurring viral disease in deer. Uh, it is the most significant killer of deer outside of hunters on an annual basis in America. Wow. Uh, but, you know, that and, and cars probably would be right there together. But the one difference with EHD is, is it's a, a, what we term a, cycl a cyclical disease. Uh, it doesn't occur every year. It doesn't occur in the same locations every year. But there are some commonalities and some things we we do know about it. Uh, the first thing, you know, what causes EHD? Uh, well, it's a, as I mentioned, it's a viral disease, so it's caused by a virus. And, and the virus is transmitted by a little biting midge. Uh, in much of the country, they're called noceums. Uh, it's a little, almost, you know, almost uh, indistinguishable little gnat. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically can bite an infected deer and fly to an uninfected deer and, and share the virus. Um, and so EHD is, is the, the technical term there is epizootic hemorrhagic disease, EHD. Um, uh, probably a more appropriate term for the disease we know would be just simply hemorrhagic disease. Uh, and the reason I say that is because uh, there are two different viral families, viruses, closely related but distinct viruses that cause what we call hemorrhagic disease. One is EHD virus, where the name comes from. The other is blue tongue virus. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of hunters know it as blue tongue or EHD or hemorrhagic disease. So all three of those are correct terms. Uh, but within those two different distinct virus families, there are different um, strains, if you will. They're called serotypes. What we'll is called strains? So there are a handful, I think, three known um, EHD virus types, uh, and there are about 11 different blue tongue virus types. So there are about 14 different strains of one or the other that can cause hemorrhagic disease in deer. Um, and so, you know, it's really not all that important other than the fact that there one out of those, you know, 15 or 16 different options, one of them accounts for about 80% of all infections. So that's EHD they call it serotype two. Uh, EHD two is the most common one. Um, and what's interesting though is that uh, a number of things can happen when a deer is infected. Uh, and the first thing to think about when when a hunter's thinking about hemorrhagic disease is it's a very seasonal disease. Uh, it occurs when the midges are present. Uh, so midges are present, you know, in the summer months. Uh, they typically die off and and go quiet after the first frost or two. So this disease is very seasonably predictable. Okay. So from July to about October. So it's now, you know, late September. We're, we're within a month probably of, of seeing the end of the disease, whatever outbreaks are occurring this year. Um, now, what's interesting about the disease, too, is that not all deer herds are equally susceptible. Uh, in the southern United States, the disease is more frequent. The deer are exposed to it more often and innate resistance is higher. Doesn't mean we don't see death in deer in the South, but typically we don't see much because deer are so frequently exposed to it that you know they may get a little sick, but they don't typically die from it. Right. As you move into the central US, and you mentioned Iowa, so I'll say Iowa, Kansas, uh, Missouri, Kentucky, those herds get, get exposed to the disease less frequently, but because they have lower antibody levels to it, we see higher mortalities. Uh, and as you move even further north, and we'll say southern Michigan, Pennsylvania, 
parts of Montana, the Milk River is historic for some of the outbreaks in the Milk River in Montana. Those herds see it even less frequently, uh, and it can have even higher mortalities in those areas. Um, but but most the, probably the bullseye for the disease is is most commonly around Iowa, Missouri, Kentucky, because there's the combination of frequency and severity. Uh, so so that's typically where we're really seeing some some severe outbreaks. You know, it's that central belt of the country. Now, uh, is it more is it more prevalent on drier or wetter summers, if you will? Yeah, so that's that's a good point. So it, it it's it's much more common in drought years, and it's simply because as water recedes, two things happen: you get exposed mud flats, which are the perfect breeding grounds for the gnats. Mm-hmm. Uh, as water recedes, you have fewer water sources for deer, so deer are going to go to, you know, the, the 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 remaining water sources that exist. Those are typically going to have, you know, a lot more exposed mud flats around them because of the water levels being down during drought years. Yep. So you have that perfect storm. Um, historically, we see a severe outbreak about every seven years. So there is somewhat of a sort of, I wouldn't say predictable nature to it, but but it's it's not going to typically be a, a really hard outbreak more than, you know, once every few years in a given location. Um and because you were hit one time doesn't mean you'll be hit again anytime soon. And you could be hit in a couple of years. I mean, it, it, there's, there's a lot of unknowns in terms of how this thing operates on the landscape. Mm-hmm. What we are seeing, though, is, is that whether you call it climate change or whatever you call it, we are seeing warmer winters. And so we're seeing those midge populations moving and sustaining themselves farther north than we've ever seen them. So places that never used to get hit with it, uh, places like southern Michigan, even into Canada, uh, we're seeing a few cases now, for the first time in decades, hit those areas. Wow. So so it's it's becoming a, a fairly significant concern in many areas. Now, one thing, a couple of things I want to point out is that when you look at mortality rates on a, a localized basis, um, very severe outbreak years, you know, certainly reports of 30, 40 percent localized mortality is not unheard of. Uh, in most cases, it's much lower than that. Um, it's going to be in the five, 10 percent range. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, but still, you know, and if that happens to be a bachelor group of bucks that went to a water hole in the summertime and they all got infected and died, it was, you know, you know, five of your three and four and five year old bucks. It can knock a big dent in your in your in, in the deer you want to harvest yeah. in that in that year and it sometimes takes you a couple of years to recover because you've lost a couple of parts of a couple of key age classes of bucks for example uh deer of all ages and sexes are equally susceptible uh bucks are no less or no more susceptible however buck behavior often causes them a problem because they're in bachelor groups during the summer and if they go as a group to the water hole and get infected you sometimes you can see a cluster of, of mature bucks dead uh near water sources and and that that's heartbreaking um, so, you know, the good thing about it is if, if a hunter's out on the landscape, July to October, they find dead deer lying there that look otherwise fairly healthy, ex, you know, just looking at them, there's no obvious, you know, bullet holes or emaciation or that sort of thing. If it's near a water source during one of those months, the odds are very high it's hemorrhagic disease. I mean, it's the most common thing, you know, that's, you know. You know, I, 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 some a friend of mine shared an anecdote. He said, "Hey, if you're if you're if you're doing a, a circuit around bars and there's a guy laying in the ditch with a, a whiskey bottle next to him, he's probably drunk." Um, 
if you find deer near the water during the summertime, you know, that's probably hemorrhagic disease. It's just kind of a, you know, a, a localized, obvious sort of diagnosis mm-hmm. or other things that can kill deer. Uh, we see, you know, various things in Texas, your home state. We occasionally see an anthrax outbreak that kills deer. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll talk about chronic wasting disease in a minute. Now, when a deer gets infected, uh, one of three things can happen. Uh, one, they can die fairly quickly. Uh, and this, as the name implies, it causes internal hemorrhaging of major organs. So it's a pretty nasty disease. Uh, it's accompanied with high fever. That's what drives deer to the water. They want to cool off. Um, they got a high fever. Um, so if you find them in the water, near the water, they probably had the, the rapid onset you know, we call it the paracute form of the disease, just the rapid death version. Mm-hmm. We're talking 12 to 36 hours and they're done. Okay. Rapid, done, over. Regardless of how healthy they are, what you're feeding them, how many minerals you give them, that's just, that's, that's done. Then there's the acute form, uh, which is kind of the middle, middle, middle category where they may struggle for weeks and then eventually die. Mm-hmm. Those are going to have more obvious, uh, we call them lesions, um, some things in the upper palate of the mouth. Uh, if you cut them open, you'd see massive internal organ damage. Uh, the little uh, little finger-like things in the rumen. If you ever cut a deer's stomach open, they have all this little fingerly little stuff yeah. in there that keeps the food moving. All of that dies and starts sloughing off. So you have a smooth gut. Of course, the deer can't process without those rumen papillae, as they're called. Uh, so there's a, a number of those kinds of things that, you know, anyone trained and looking for that disease could easily identify. And then there's the chronic form, which is the survivable form. Uh, so, so many deer do survive. Um, and those that do, if they're killed during the hunting season, will often have um, what we call a sloughing hoof condition, where it looks like there's a clear demarcation in the hoof. looks like a piece of the hoof's going to come off. Yeah. And it's not, not unlike having, you know, arsenic in, in the human body, it kind of is measured in your hair as your hair grows. And if you ever watch CSI, um, that's basically what's happening is that that virus impacted them at that that stage where the 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 the, the separation in the hoof is and it's trying to slough and get shed that virus. Hmm. Uh, and they do so a number of ways, but one ways is one of the ways is through, you know, replacing their hoof material. Um, you know, so you know the good news here is that whether the deer, regardless of which stage of infection you might kill a deer with that disease, there is zero human health concern. Uh, we are not susceptible to either hemorrhagic disease virus or blue tongue virus. Meat is perfectly fine. Okay. Uh, worry about it. Um, what can you do about it? Uh, well, you know, I've heard some pretty extreme measures, people trying to use uh, insect foggers and things around water sources to kill the midges. I would think that's pretty ineffectual. Um, one thing that I think has some merit is providing clean water in troughs uh, or in in situations like ponds that have a, a sharper bank um, where they don't have a you know uh, a, a mud flat opportunity. The water recedes straight down in a pond that's got a sharp bank. Uh, so you want to reduce mud exposure. Is at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about is is mud exposure. You know, if you're in a floodplain area. Um, you know, there's not any way to really do that if half your property's got floodplain exposure. But if you're on a dry site, uh, you can manipulate your ponds, your water sources to to limit your your exposure. We think a little bit. Um, one thing we know is it's even though it may hit Iowa, okay, 
Doesn't mean it hits all of Iowa. Doesn't mean it even hits the same property in the same yeah. county the same way. So it it has very sporadic and different impacts in in most years, unless we see just a very wide outbreak. Two historic outbreaks that I can recall were in 2007 and 2012, and we lost hundreds of thousands of deer across the Midwest. It was a a you know both of those in this 2007 outbreak hit. Uh, it was termed a once in a hundred year event. Well, five years later, we had one that was equally bad. Uh, and then we had some other examples in 2018, 19, you know, so it's, it's certainly, and here we are in 23 and and have another one. Um, I did call my, my DHD experts this morning. Uh, there's a group uh, that monitors this disease and others uh, called the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study Unit. Um, bunch of vet folks at the University of Georgia that handle all the cases from across most most of the country and have monitored this uh, this disease for you know 70 years. Um, and they did confirm that uh, Iowa, Missouri, and Kentucky uh, did have the largest numbers of cases so far this year. Wow. So it, it's fairly restricted. Thankfully, not much else elsewhere. Uh, so we're not seeing a big year. Uh, obviously, if if one of our teammates is his particular farm is impacted, he's going to call it a big year. Oh yeah, oh <laughs> uh, yeah. You, you know, it's all it's all what it does to you personally. But in terms of you know more historical scale uh, and impacts, we think this is a fairly moderate, mild year, except in a few localized areas. You know, I've I've seen it down in South Texas before too. Uh, a couple of years ago, actually, right before I came on board with HuntStand. Uh, there was a ranch in South Texas that, um, not far from where we had actually done our predator hunt together, that they had a little outbreak there as well. And in fact, they had a watering hole um, close to the hunter's cabin that, you know, you kind of have those localized deer that come up and, you know, they hang out because they know, they essentially know they're safe right there. And mm -hmm. there was this buck that was coming in and it's like, man, he looks sickly. And a couple weeks later, the ranch manager's uh, ranch manager talked with me and he's like, yeah, dude, we had a serious outbreak from that. Mm -hmm. so. Well, that's, that's actually unique because Texas and Florida and Western Kansas um, seem to be almost immune to hemorrhagic disease. Mm -hmm. Those deer have the highest resistance uh, because of the, the their, their geographic locations. I mean, they're, yeah. you, know, you know, apart from Western Kansas, you're talking about Texas and Florida being t the two most Southern states we have. You know, gnat populations, you know, can blossom in those years in those deep southern locations. They can overwinter every year, you know, without any, any cold temperatures. So you, you, if you live in Florida, Texas, or western Kansas, uh, you, you've kept yourself fortunate because yeah. you've got the, the you know, um, almost no chance, but some some chance. Mm -hmm. uh, it's true once you're up in the far New England tier of our country, you know, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, it's pretty darn rare up in that part of the world. It used to be unheard of in Canada. It used to be unheard of in Northern Pennsylvania, Northern yeah. Michigan. Now we're seeing a few cases. Uh, so, uh, but typically, like I said, the biggest states that get hit most of the time would be from West Virginia to Iowa, right through that center, Missouri, Kentucky, Indiana, yeah. that belt there just often takes the brunt of the, of the deaths of the disease, not, not the incidence of disease, because that's widespread, but the, the mortalities uh, typically, and a place I've hunted Kentucky for years, I mean, it wasn't well, seven, six, seven years ago, we probably lost 30% of our deer herd in one year. Um, yeah. and that, that can hurt. Yeah, it can. Talk talk to us about um, 
you know, it sounds some of these deer you can tell that, or you you can't even tell that they're infected. But you know, let's talk about those deer that you can definitely tell the signs and symptoms if you know somebody's out there and they see a deer like this that you know they can help identify what what are those typical symptoms yeah again i would be looking for any deer that doesn't act normal uh one that is it fits that time frame of the year again from late july to mid-october in most of the country uh if it's near water that should be something to definitely keep in mind now there are a lot of things that can give deer a fever and make them go to water so it's not the only thing but that's again what we're what we're looking for uh, if you see a deer that is, uh, you know, again, near water, uh, feverish, obviously feverish, kind of standing there, lethargic, maybe the tongue's hanging out, mm-hmm. uh, blue, swollen, blue tongue disease. Um, so, you know, those are things that you can look for if there's if if they're in that middle group I mentioned earlier, not the rapid death, but kind of the ones hanging on. They're the ones that are going to show the symptoms the most because they struggle with it for yeah. weeks, sometimes a couple of months. Um, again, they're going to have... Um, if you if you're able to you know you put your hands on them and there's nothing you can get by doing so you can open up look in the roof of their mouth there could be some lesions in the roof of their mouth they probably are going to have an enlarged swollen tongue uh, you know if you're able to cut them open the the lungs and the chest cavity is going to be full of very pronounced hemorrhaging wow. uh, again if you're able to if you want to you know cut into their stomach their rumen look for the the evidence of those little rumen papillae as they're called being sloughed off and gone. Uh, those would be things that um, you know would be clear. In most cases, the state agencies aren't going to send somebody out to to diagnose your deer for you. Um, it, but it's still a good thing to report it. Um, they may want to get a few cases just to kind of see w- which one of the, the types of of viruses it is, whether it's blue tongue virus or hemorrhage. So they may come out and take a, a sample or two and send it down to the lab. Uh, in most cases, they'll just kind of document it and kind of keep rolling. As again, it happens you know, pretty frequently. Yeah. You know, about all what, you know, what can hunters do? I, I mentioned what you can do on the landscape, um, pretty much good, clean water and, and, and reducing mud exposure. But beyond that, if you get hit, you know, you know, you know, if you have a historic hunting group on a property that takes five bucks and 20 does a year, just for example, you know, if you get a, a lot of deer die, you got to cut back on your deer harvest. Yeah. You know, you, you know, that's that. What do you do? You shoot fewer deer until the deer herd bounces. Mm-hmm. Good thing is, you know, it will bounce, you know, at least in 95% of cases because deer do well at making more of themselves if given the time and the space. Um, so it can knock you back for a season or two, but typically it's not a petrol problem, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so just back off your deer harvest a little bit, um, and and hopefully by next year, or, or certainly within two years, you probably won't notice a difference, and hopefully you'll be lucky and go another seven, eight, 10, 15 years without seeing it again. Yeah, that's that's a good thing. You know, uh, where we had been hunting in Nebraska for the past two years, I can't remember the exact year, uh, but the guy's property that we'd been going on in that particular part of Nebraska, they got hit by EHD, and you could definitely tell because they were talking about, you know, the heydays right before it got hit that, you know, the amount of deer that they would see, the caliber of bucks, and, you know, it gets you excited. But then when we're hunting there, the numbers just aren't there. And so they're they're starting to come out of that hole and recover. Uh, and then even where I went hunting in Kansas this past year with the drought, it really got uh, Cody, who we were hunting on his place, got him concerned that he was going to get hit with it. But I think they got pretty reluctant and got some rain at, probably some really crucial 
times that they needed it. So I think it kind of helped curve it off from happening. And I'm sure there's been probably a few cases up there just because of the drought, but I think it probably saved them in their area. Yeah. Yeah. And with the the more extreme weather patterns that we've been experiencing the last handful of years, both droughts and floods, uh, you know, I suspect we'll, we'll look back in 50 more years and, mm-hmm. and, and there's a trend there because certainly there's good evidence to suggest that you know, back-to-back drought years followed with, if, particularly if, if a mild winter is in between back-to-back drought years, you can kind of be setting yourself up for, you know, particularly if you hadn't seen it in a while and you're in that belt, that middle part of our country, you know, that's when I would be looking out going, oh, guys, this could be a year for it. Um, we're setting ourselves up with all the right conditions, drought, mild winter, so that the midges can overwinter in good numbers. Oof. So that's, that's, you know, that's when I would start to worry a little bit if I were managing a farm in the Midwest and it'd been a handful of years since we'd seen it. And then all of a sudden we had back-to-back droughty years and a very mild winter. I'd be going, "Uh uh-oh, it's coming. And historic, historic records suggest it will come, (laughs) you know, uh, in due time. Um, So again, not a lot we can do about it. it. You know, it, it's interesting that we believe it's a naturally occurring viral disease in deer, uh, like I said, first discovered in the 50s. But the one thing that's, that's interesting about it is, is it hits this central belt of our country the most, as I mentioned, and that happens to be the most productive deer herds in our country. So is it nature's way of just trimming off, you know, as deer herds can, can grow out uncontrolled, is it, is it, an, is it some nature's way of, of knocking those populations back at some, yeah. you know, See, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to that, but it's interesting that it does hit where deer herds can recover pretty quickly because you have such high fawn recruitment rates in Iowa, Missouri, you know, Kentucky, you know, through that belt there. That's kind of the perfect blend of agriculture and and deer habitat. Uh, so our deer herds typically respond pretty quickly, you know, after an outbreak there. Whereas, you know, if you're on the fringe of the if 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 Texas, South Texas got hit regularly with hemorrhagic disease. I mean, you'd never have any deer no, because the fawn crop is so poor down there on an annual basis that, you know, if, if you had to add hemorrhagic disease on top of, you know, the the, the low fawn recruitment that we have and predators and everything else, you'd, you'd run out of deer in, in you know, the fringe areas of, of the whitetails range. So. Yeah, and then mix in the occasional outbreak of anthrax like you talked about. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are some, certainly some you know, some concerns with the disease, but again, not one that we know of, uh, you know, again, no human health concerns, just something we have to roll with as deer hunters yep. and managers. Dif- very different than CWD. That's a very different animal. Which is a good segue because I was about to roll us into that. You know, let's, yeah. let's talk about CWD now. Like what, what does it stand for and what is it? Yeah. So, so it's uh it stands for chronic wasting disease and uh, you know, most hunters, are, if they, if they know anything about it, have probably heard about it in the last five to 10 years. Um, most hunters. However, the disease was first described in 1967. Uh, so it's not a new thing, uh, but it's new to the whitetail range if you count the last two or three decades. I mean, you know, not in, not yesterday, but so, you know, it was mostly considered a Western disease of deer and elk uh, prior to, to 2001. And that's when the first case east of the Mississippi River hit uh, Wisconsin. Wow. And so that's when it really kind of sounded the alarm bells in the whitetail world uh, because, again, it was considered an elk and mule deer thing up until that point. Uh, since 2001, unfortunately, it's it's continued to spread. Uh, it's now in, I think, 27 states and a handful of Canadian provinces. So, you know, good over half the whitetails range has some 
CWD in their state somewhere. Mm. Uh, there are very few states that are, quote, clean, and, and those may not be clean. They just haven't detected it yet, perhaps. Uh, my home state of Georgia is considered CWD free at this point. However, it's now on three of our four boundaries or five boundaries. It's um, in, in Florida, uh, Alabama, and Tennessee. Uh, so it's kind of creeping its head next door pretty quick. Yeah. Um, and what, what's different about this disease and what's so frustrating to, to, to wildlife managers, to hunters, is that it's the, the disease agent is not a living thing like a virus or a bacteria. Uh, it's, it's hard to understand. Uh, it's called, uh, the, the disease agent is termed a prion, uh, which is a protein uh, that is naturally occurring in humans and many animals, most animals. Um, but this one is different because it's a misshapen, misfolded protein. And it resides in the central nervous system tissue. And basically what it does once it's in an animal is it invades the, the cells of the animal and changes normal proteins into the the defective abnormal form mm -hmm. and 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 that causes uh you know over time it's a very slow progressing disease unlike hemorrhagic disease that can happen in hours or days or weeks this one takes years um and it's an always fatal disease uh so if a deer gets it if it lives long enough um it will die to the disease yeah. prematurely now most end up dying to something else before that because it takes a long time to manifest um, the external symptoms. Um, what's what's really concerning about this disease, besides it being an always fatal brain, and, and basically what the disease agent does over time is, you know, if you think of Swiss cheese, that's what it does to the animal's brain over time. Yeah, you know, creates a Swiss cheese look of the brain and central nervous tissues, and basically the deer loses all motor functions and dies. Wow. But it takes a while to do that. Um, the 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 challenging thing from a from a kind of wildlife management standpoint is that a, we don't have, there's no cure for it. Uh, we're not aware of any cure. Uh, and the fact that even in the complete absence of the animal in, on the landscape, in other words, even if we killed every deer in an area with CWD that we, you know, we could, and that would be impractical and impossible. But if we, even if we could, uh, there's clear evidence, um, both anecdotally and research-based evidence that shows that the prion protein can can remain in the environment for at least deck. We think it, uh, more than a decade uh, in the complete absence of deer, and when deer are re-exposed to that environment, they get sick and get infected again. So think of it as toxic waste, almost you know, radio radioactive material. In, without even deer on the landscape, that disease agent, because it's not alive. It's almost impossible to kill with heat. I think 1,750 degrees, I think, is the magic number. But I don't know anybody that cooks their white tail to, to that internal temperature unless they no. like to eat dust. Um, you can't freeze it. You know, so, so you, you know, there's no easy way to, 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 to fix the, the, the infected material, if you will. Uh, and there's plenty of examples in, in research facilities where they've depopulated a facility that had CWD, taken the topsoil out disinfected everything around they could think of, left it fallow for two, three years, and then put deer back in it, and they got CWD again and died. Um, and it repeated experimentally over and over. I mean, this, it, 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 it is what it is. Um, so, so the, so the challenge to state agencies is what do you do about this thing? Um, you know, we, we know a few things that, that we can say, and that is it's spread through saliva, urine, feces, the environment, you know, deer, deer to deer contact, you know, at a mineral site, at a feeder, uh, a water source, perhaps a scrape, um, 
you know, maybe in the field or around a persimmon or an oak tree, but, you know, that's probably less likely than a direct source like a water source, a feed source, et cetera. Um, but nose to nose contact, deer do a lot of in, engagement with each other, social grooming, does to fawns, bucks to bucks. I mean, there's a lot of licking and changing yeah. of material. So there's a pretty, you know, uh, efficient way for this disease to spread on the landscape. And, and a big challenge, one that I, I struggle with, um, having run the Quality Deer Management Association for almost 25 years and advocate, you know, advocated passing those younger bucks, getting mature bucks in the population. Well, mature bucks are anywhere from three to five times more likely to be infected than young bucks, uh, mainly because A, they're older and B, you know, mature bucks have typically large home ranges. They engage with a lot of deer on the landscape, so they just run into opportunity for the disease more so than does do. Um, it mean does can't be infected and older does are more likely to be infected than younger does. Um, older bucks are more likely to be infected than, than younger bucks. So, you know, a lot of state agencies are advocating you know, very young buck uh, age structures in states like Missouri, for example. Um, I don't know if it's statewide, but in certainly parts of their state, they've removed the antler restrictions and encouraged hunters to go back to shooting young bucks again. And that's counter to the modern culture of most deer hunters today mm -hmm. that don't want to shoot year and a half old bucks anymore. You know, they want to shoot three and four and five year old bucks. Um, and so that creates some 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 challenges for the agencies to try to figure out how what to do about this stuff. Um, and so so it's a it's a very different disease. Uh, it's one that we don't know really how to deal with long term. I don't know what the long term implications are. Um, one thing that is I would say still uncertain to some extent. I don't want to fear monger anybody here uh, because there's no evidence to support it. Uh, clear evidence is. You know, TSE, the CWDs in a group of diseases um, called TSEs, and, and all that stands for, it's a big fancy word called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, a long word, but it's a it's a family of brain diseases. Um, and thing that, that it's interesting about CWD is it's very closely related to what we know as mad cow disease. Um, they're slightly different molecularly, but but it's the same thing. It's a it's a prion protein disease. And we know that mad cow killed, you know, I think it was 236 Europeans and two Americans, one Texan and one Floridian. Um, so we know that that mad cow, you know, people consuming infected beef from, you know, um, uh, you know, mad cow disease infected deer or, or beef can 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 die. Uh, can, you know, millions ate infected beef before they figured it out and only a couple of hundred died. So it's not like everybody eats, it's going to die. There's also a closely related sister cousin to this disease in sheep called scrapie. Scrapie's been around probably 400 years. Yeah. And there's not been one human health concern ever documented. So you've got kind of two, got a sheep version that doesn't, we don't think has any human concerns. And then we got a beef version that can kill people. So we got this deer one in between. You know, where did it come from? We don't know. There's some evidence to suggest that it that it um, mutated from scrapie. Uh, in fact, where it was first discovered, that there there was a history of sheep uh, on that site prior to deer being on the site. It was a research facility in Colorado when it was first discovered. So there's some speculative evidence that it may have mutated from scrapie and became the deer version. Yeah. Um, we hope that's the case um, to a large extent because that would then give us a little more assurance that there's no human concern. 
Um, now there's, there's also a spontaneous version in humans, uh, about one in a million humans get a TSE, a brain disease. We don't know why, just somewhat spontaneous. Uh, and that one's called uh, VCJD, which stands for variant, variant Crutchfield-Jakob disease. Um, and that's the big concern out there, uh, you know, among the scientific community is, you know, is there any correlation to the human form, uh, you know, relative to consumption of venison? Yeah. But thankfully, uh, both CDC, uh, the World Health Organization, and there, we have a national prion lab here in the U.S., uh, at Case Western University. Uh, luckily, there's a lot of high-powered big groups looking at this. Uh, so it's not like, you know, there's no 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 homework being done behind the scenes, and they have been looking at populations of, of humans uh, that have this brain disease and then trying to correlate that back to their uh, consumption of venison relative to also the location of CWD-infected deer in those areas. And so far, there's been no, no, no evidence to suggest that, that that there's a causal link there, if that That's makes good. sense. That's so good. right now, right now we feel pretty safe. However, experimentally, uh, in certain primates and in what we call transgenic mice, where they insert human genes into mice, uh, there's clear evidence that at least in a lab setting, it is possible to infect both primates and you know human altered mice um, with the human form of of this brain disease so we can't rule it out um mm -hmm. but we but we also have some some assurance now that the disease has been around 60 years and we can't prove anything yet wow so that's good now the guidance though uh if if it, you know and this is you know every state agency's guidance as well as world health organization cdc all all, all the prion folks in the world say hey even though there's no evidence yet we strongly encourage you not to eat an infected animal yeah, just to be safe. Uh, just to be safe, uh, we encourage you to wear protective gloves uh, if you're in an area that potentially has CWD when assessing your deer. Uh, most hunters would be aware that if they do, in fact, almost every stadium, if you don't have CWD now, can't move certain parts of deer across state lines. Uh, you have to debone the animal in most most states now. Sometimes even parts of states to move between even counties or or certain deer management units. Uh, so hunters need to become proficient at at skinning and boning. Uh, you can't bring the backbone back, that central nervous tissue, and the, you can't bring the, a full skull back. You have to do a you know skull cap or something like that. Uh, so there's some regulations that hunters uh, definitely need to be aware of uh, because you be, can be breaking law and and potentially moving CWD. Uh, one source of, of 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 potential infection in a new area is the carcass or parts thereof of an infected animal. So for example, you go to pick a state that has CWD, you know, there's many of them, mm -hmm. uh, you buck, and you don't know that regulations or you say, oh, it doesn't matter. And you throw it in the back of your truck and you drive three states back to your home state and you debone that animal there and you throw the carcass in the back 40 and think it's all good conceivably. Uh, and again, there's evidence to support that route of transmission is possible. Uh, you conceivably have just moved CWD from whatever state you shot the buck in or doe in and moved it to your backyard. Uh, so don't do that. Um, you know, it's always best to leave the remains of the animal on the site you killed it. Uh, burying is better than throwing it in the dead pit, obviously. Um, some states let you discard um, 
animal parts at the local landfill, that's a that's an option as well. If that's yeah. a you know have drop sites for materials, so there's you just have to kind of look at your own state, see what the regulations are. In fact, I'm not aware of any state now that you can drive through a state with infectious potentially infectious materials uh, from another state uh, without violating that state law. Even if that state doesn't have CWD. Um, or does there's again I'm not aware of any state almost in the eastern half of the U.S. that you can transport a full intact deer head and skull or backbone material across the state line. So you either have to get if you can't figure it out yourself. Um, I, I bring I bring a boiling pot and a sawzall with me everywhere I go. That's a um, good thing to right. do because I do it all on site and and you know I know how to cape. So I, you know mm-hmm. self how to cape, teach yourself how to debone an animal cut that skull cap off, take the cape off, you get everything for the taxidermist you need. It's actually a lot of fun. Once you do it yourself, it's kind of a pleasure, you know, yep. to learn how to do that kind of stuff. And that way you also know that you're, you're squeaky clean on, on every reg. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the best way. But if not, before you go on the hunt, if you don't know how to do that stuff, before you go on the hunt, find a local processor that can handle the, the boning for you. If you can't do it, find a local taxidermist that can do the caping for you, set mm-hmm. that up front end. Or are you literally, and there have been a number of cases, you know, enforcement cases, and they made examples out of these guys of, of dragging and actually of sitting on the, I don't know if you yes. know this, but many wildlife law enforcement agencies position their agents on overpasses along major interstates. And they're watching trucks driving trailers and pickup trucks with deer on the back. And they are pulling them over one after the other going down the wow. highway because they'll send the signal down, you know, to the next, the next officer on the side of the road mm-hmm. saying, all right, you know, blue Dodge, you know, whatever, or, you know, F-250 with a trailer, got two deer on the back, they're pulling these guys over and they're, they're thumping them pretty hard because, you know, it's, it's, you know, deer hunting and, and, and conservation is, you know, conservation is driven by deer hunting and, and, you know, they're trying to protect the financial and cultural interests of deer hunting. So, you know, I applaud them, mm-hmm. but at the same time, most of the guys they're pulling over probably aren't doing it out of malice. They're just, yeah don't know or, or don't know how to do it either either don't know it or just are so overwhelmed with the process well and i think it's just because it's like you said you know it just seems like within the recent decade it's it's really become more prevalent in the hunting culture and it's it's so new that i think a lot of people just like you said it's it's not out of malintent it's just kind of one of those things where it's like oh i'll do it when they tell me to kind of deal you know like i won't break the law so like i'm kind of checking looking through a couple different states and uh kind of looking at like uh Kansas right now um they don't necessarily have laws on it but it's more or less uh recommendations on things to follow which are the things you're talking about like don't remove the carcass from the kill site if possible um if you do take it to your local landfill uh keeping your permit with the meat uh just stuff like that so yeah it, uh, I think I think we're going to begin to see more states like Texas, Oklahoma, and and more of your eastern states uh, probably going to see it adopted across all fifty before long. I bet it pretty much is almost there. And if if hunters are are, are want to learn more about the disease itself, there mm-hmm. is kind of a third party sort of non political, just facts only kind of group. Mm-hmm. If you go to it's called the CWD Alliance, um, and that's CWDinfo-org. CWDinfo-org, great website, got a lot of state-by-state uh, information on research, what's going on in your state, your region. Check your state wildlife agency for the regulations you need right. to you know, comply with there. And any you're driving through, 
you know, as you, a lot of people, you know, make that pilgrimage to the Midwest to hunt the big whitetails like I do every year and many thousands do, you know, you, you may go through three, four, five, six states or more. You, you got to know. And the easiest thing is just to realize, pick any one of them and you're probably going to have to debone and de-skull yeah. uh, cap your animal. So I don't even, I don't even look at the race because I, I know I'm just going to do it to the, to the T's anyway, mm-hmm. you know, they're all my stuff with me. And if not, I, I make sure somebody there on the other end has, you have a boiling pot. If I want to clean the skull out, you have a sawzall or a hacksaw. Can I get that skull open? You know, I can cape myself so I can do that quickly. But, you know, any of the other stuff, it's like, I just want to make sure you got that on site so that when I get there and hopefully harvest an animal, that I can be squeaky clean before I leave, you know, and not have to drive to town and try to buy all that stuff or find somebody at, you right. know, in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So, so, so what it boils down to, though, I mean, with both of these diseases, I mean, there's really not much we can do, you know, aside, you know, like CWD, though, sounds like pretty much the main thing is just transportation and carcass care is the, is the, yeah. So the two, the two ways, I mean, obviously deer, deer move the, the, the the disease around by interacting with themselves. Um, There's some evidence that predators and scavengers might, might be moving some of that infectious material around as well, you know, crows and coyotes and things that may scavenge on an infected deer and then move it. So there's some of that, mm-hmm. uh, but we can't control that. Right. Um, humans, humans, the risk from humans in spreading the disease really comes in two forms. One, hunters moving potentially infected materials. We've mm-hmm. talked a lot about that. The others, the, the those involved in deer breeding and deer farming that are moving live animals around the state or around the country. Yeah. Both of those, whether it be, you know, the hunters or the the deer farmers, deer breeders, both of us carry, I would say, equal responsibility, or at least nearly equal responsibility to to adhere to the right practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so both both of those groups of 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 us now, obviously, it's you know, deer breeders that may be moving hundreds, if not thousands, of deer up and down the highways in the back of trucks. That has a chance to move it a little quicker than a few carcasses yeah. here and there. But at the same t- t- token, you know, the number of deer hunters far outweighs the number of deer breeders. And we kill about 6 million whitetails a year. So there's a lot of potentially infected, you know, carcasses getting moved by hunters that we need to be up on our game too. We can't just point the fingers at one side and they can't just point back at the other. Right. You know, we're, we're in it together. Exactly. Or a deer breeder. Neither of us want CWD on our on our properties mm. regardless of your motive for, for those whitetails. You know, we, we both want clean animals. Um, you know, the long-term future of this is is uncertain. You know, there's a little bit of evidence starting to surface that that maybe um, a whitetail can be bred, a captive raised animal um, can be bred in captivity that has either high, there's some, there's a certain genotype that already has a high resistance to disease, but but they still all get it anyway. So that that's not a solution yet. There may be possible to have a completely, you know, resistant animal but the thought of trying to repopulate our nation again, um, you just think about the logistics and cost of trying to do that. And none of us want to go there. So, so there's not an easy short-term solution. We hope uh, that we get to a point where we, we can say hundred percent that it's not a human health concern. Yeah. That would be a place to be. Um, however, you know, the, the thing that concerns me probably most um, and I'm less concerned about the human health concern because we've got a pretty good track record. Yeah. That doesn't, Turn me in. I'm always little concerned there, but that's not the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Big is is that uh, once a deer population gets to a certain herd infectivity level, uh, and we have some good examples in 
Illinois and, and uh, Wisconsin and, and places that have had the disease now for, say, 30 years. Uh, and I'll use South, uh, Southwest Wisconsin as current example, but, you know, some of those herds there uh, and now have had the disease since, you know, 2001. So we're talking, you know, 20, 25 years almost. Um, they're reaching 40 percent, in, in many cases, 40 percent, certainly buck uh, infection levels and, and nearly that in some of the does. And at that level, we start to see the overall health of that population and the ability to sustain additional hunter harvest starting to decline. And we're seeing that in the West with some mule deer populations. And so what concerns me is that with long-term, we're talking about decades now, long-term CWD infection populations could conceivably get to a point where they couldn't sustain any additional hunter harvest. They can just basically maintain themselves barely. And so if we can't hunt them um, in those areas, that takes a lot of recreation and opportunity and love yeah. of doing. Uh, I worked a lot in Wisconsin during the outbreak years, early days and you know many of those those landowners just like landowners and hunters everywhere invested their life savings and life works into their properties and now they're dealing with cwd and now they're dealing with infectious levels that they almost can't eat any deer off their farm mm. uh, and they could conceivably get to a point where they couldn't even harvest any deer off their farm um you know how how heartbreaking would that be to any of us that you know have invested in in, in a piece of ground you know it's a tough thing to think about really tough thing to think about uh it is you know i, I before we started I, I told you i didn't want to get too much into the political politicalness of it but I, I was interested to get your take on just one thing and specifically i think it's a, a hot button issue and that's um they're talking about uh banning feeding in kansas you know baiting stations and everything and you know essentially Yes, that is a, a, a place that a deer could contract the disease because of those things that you talked about earlier. But all those things outside that they do outside of uh, being at, say, a feeding station, water, mineral lick, whatever it might be, um, I, I was interested to kind of get your take on something like that. Yeah, so every, everything is just really a, a, a risk scenario analysis, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, anything we as humans do in life has some degree of risk. You know, if we drive intoxicated, our risk is much higher than driving sober. And so it's it's all about risk and managing risk. And, and, and I think it's important for hunters to realize that state wildlife agencies, you know, they're not the devil. You know, they have a mandate, a legal mandate to look after the wildlife resource and to protect it for many generations to come, you know, right. the next thousand years. So they have to look at the thousand year sort of, you know, how do we, how do we ensure we take the right path now to ensure it's sustainable wildlife for forever? Uh, so, so they're always going to take the most conservative approach. Almost, they almost have to, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a mandate, right? So we can't can't be mad at our agencies for doing some of these things. We can we can debate them. We can argue certainly with them. That's 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 our our choices, you know, a free nation. But you know, so we we there's clear evidence that anything that congregates deer mm -hmm. is bad for disease. And we're, whether we're talking CWD or anything uh you know just like during covid you know we we wore masks and you know it was not a good idea even outside of covid would you go up and stick your mouth on a uh, on a public faucet that 10 people drank put their mouth on right before you probably not right it's mm -hmm. just not you know a smart thing to do so so yeah it does make sense to to limit feeding or restrict it or or or, or even outlaw it as much as you know i, I personally am not against feeding deer if, it, if it's done correctly um Mineral supplements are typically 
conjoined with that. So generally they go after both. So most states, if they go after, you know, minerals are going to go after feeding and vice versa. Uh, both of those are, are more high risk scenarios than, than another one they often go after, which I don't agree with. And that's, that's natural deer urine in, in terms of, you know, scent sense, mm -hmm. um, because yeah, prions can be in urine, but they're at such low levels. And there's now a new group that's formed within the urine manufacturers group that adhere to a closed population, no new animals in and out, you know, they have really tightened up their game. And so I have, you know, near hundred percent confidence that if, if they're part of that, uh, that coalition of, of urine manufacturers, which represents about 95% of the industry, just don't ban those. That's a, that's a small drop in the bucket. Yeah. Uh, however, minerals and feed, those are two things that are hard to argue as a biologist. Right. Just hard to argue aren't, aren't smart things to do in the near term. Um, and you'll get counter arguments to say, what's the difference between that and a food plot or an acorn tree? Well, there is a big difference. Yeah. I mean, average food plot, even if it's a half acre, let alone the big food plots, but even if you just set up half a quarter, quarter to half acre, still tens of thousands of square feet versus a five foot wide trough. You, you know, know, something, uh, something to kind of take note of, and I, I'm interested to get your thought on this too, is being from Texas, you know, we be, we bait, we feed, uh, a lot of our feeders are spin feeders. They're on timers. Uh, you do have your protein feeders that have the nozzles and gravity fed. And the thing that I noticed outside of the state of Texas, I've been to states that feed like Kansas, Ohio. They do not use spin feeders. It's all gravity fed. So I don't know what your thought on what I'm about to say is, but Okay, if we want to stop the congregation but still allow people in Kansas and other baiting states to feed, maybe it's one of those things that there's no longer legal uh, gravity-fed nozzles that really concentrates. I mean, I don't know if it would make a difference to have feed and corn broadcast it that spreads it a little bit more where they have to pick it up in morsels off the ground. Actually, you're probably compounding your issue by a spin feeder rather than making it better. Really? Um, while you yeah, while you do have saliva issues at a gravity-fed tube or trough, what you don't have is urine and feces, which are shed on the ground uh, on test areas. Did not think about that. So you've actually got more more infectious material close to the feed when it's fed on the ground than you do in a trough or a True. tube. Um, so so that's not an easy easy fix there. Um, so I'm not sure what the answer is there no. because. <laughs> And, and, and in fact, what we're seeing now with this sort of, um, let's call it CWD fatigue that's occurring in many states that have dealt with it a long time, mm -hmm. they're starting to, to you know, press their agencies and, and, and often successfully to get baiting bans reversed. So some states are going back to allowing baiting and feeding that had prior eliminated them under CWD, not because the agency necessarily wants to do it. It's just the political pressure has gotten so hot on those agencies that many of them have relinquished and said, okay, uh, so they've either allowed it or they allowed it in a limited form relative to what it used to be. Kind of uh, like, so kind of like Nebraska per se. Uh, you can't hunt on bait or feed within, I, I can't remember the exact regulation. I think it's like a hundred or 200 yards. I'd have to look it up specifically. I mean, it's basically what, um, uh, what's his name? Josh Bomar got in trouble for was being, too close to that feeding station. Yeah, yeah that the, the close issue is more of one that would be argued in an ethical sort of what's fair versus a disease management perspective. Gotcha. You know, no matter whether you can hunt over it or not, if the deer have access to it, the disease 
transmission doesn't change. Uh, Georgia had that law for a long time that you could supplementally feed, you couldn't bait, and you had to stay within 200 yards or line of sight um, from that feed. Uh, ultimately, the pressure was so high that they completely changed that. Now you can do anything you want. Um, same occurred in Mississippi. So a lot of states have tried to kind of restrict that that baiting and feeding. And, and typically what we see is uh, when when a state only allows feeding of deer, not baiting, mm-hmm. just feeding deer, uh, about, you know, some relatively low percentage of hunters do it. But when, when baiting is legal, it generally quadruples the number of people participating in putting food out for deer because now you can hunt over it. Um, so we see, and that obviously quadruples the disease transmission risk and, you know, all kinds of other things. So, so, uh, but yeah, we're baiting and feeding are, are, are obviously widespread and ingrained and culturally accepted in many areas like Texas and deep South, uh, less so in some States and, mm-hmm. and more so in others. So all part of the, all part of the, uh, the political discourse of deer management in America. Yep. The, the conundrum of it all, <laughs> if you will. So, well, Brian, I appreciate your time. I know we are pretty much out of time here. Any last final thoughts and concern to EHD, CWD for all the listeners out there? I think the main thing is just keep the two very distinct in your mind. EHD is naturally occurring. Not a lot we can do about it. doesn't hurt you to eat the animals, uh, and it won't hit you every year. If you have it once, there's no infectious material left, per se. It's just kind of kind of dances in and dances out of your life. CWD, if you get it, uh, and, and I, I pray you don't, is probably a forever thing. We certainly know it's decades long uh, in the absence of deer and with continual infection. So do everything you can. Don't make the assumption that it, it's just going to get there no matter what. In other words, don't don't be sloppy. Do what's not only legally required, but what's right. Uh, and fight like hell if you don't have it to keep it out of your neck of the woods. Because wait, while it may not affect um, your health by eating an infected deer, we don't, hopefully we'll prove that someday. What it will definitely do is change your world in terms of having to get deer tested and wondering whether you can eat the meat safely. And mama's going to ask questions at home. Is that safe to feed our kids? Uh, You may have to drive, you know, next county over to get your your deer tested. So it will add headaches and hassles to your life as a hunter. So that's as big a disruption as disease itself is what it does to us as hunters in terms of having all these regulations and, and things that we have to now comply with. So. Uh, that's what I'd say with the two is, you know, on a given year basis, um, EHD may kill more deer, but I'd rather much rather have EHD on my farm occasionally than CWD on my, my farm every year, yep. forever and ever. Amen. Yep. True yeah. words, good words to live by. Brian, appreciate your time today and uh, can't wait to wait to get you on here for the next one. Hopefully the topic will be a little more fun. Hopefully it'll <laughs> be uh, when we're in South Texas this January, putting some deer on there the ground. There you go. Maybe. All right, y'all, there you go. I hope that after today's podcast, y'all are well informed with everything that Brian brought to the table for y'all and hopefully just makes it to where you know what both are, how to identify each and so forth and so on, especially just when it comes to traveling and just all those state regulations and things to think of if you're going out of state to hunt and even in your own state as well. So again, y'all, just want to thank y'all for tuning in to the Huntstand podcast powered by 10 Point Crossbows and Moose Utility Division. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next one.